Well, hello again, everyone. We are uh, working through a sermon series titled Exodus, Saved for Glory, and we're looking at the Old Testament book, the second book in the Bible titled Exodus, of which um, Phil Riken says on the front of your bulletin, he says, Exodus is a God-centered book with a God-centered message that teaches us to have a God-centered life. Oh, how we need that, correct? Well, last week, we looked at chapter 5 of Exodus, and we saw a lot of anguish and doubt. Moses, in, um, God instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh and to ask for their release for just three days. But Pharaoh not only rejected Moses' request, but he made life unbearable for the people of Israel who were serving as slaves in Egypt. The people blamed Moses. And what did Moses do? Moses blamed God. He said, why, why, why God? Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've said something similar. You've committed your life to a faithful obedience to God, but then it seems that God makes your life worse, not better, right? And you blame God. You say, how could this be? Well, it's a sign for you and me that we don't yet know God fully. It's a sign that we still have much to learn about God. May we do so in our passage this morning. We're looking at Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. It's in your Bible on page 48, in the Pew Bible, or you can follow along. It's in your bulletin. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of, Is- of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, If you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, what a good word this is to us this morning. 
it's amazing, but it need not amaze us that we can read a story from thousands of years ago and it be filled with truth for us to embrace today. Truth about our own neediness and brokenness, but even more so truth about who you are. Powerful creator God who loves people made in his image. May we rest in the knowledge that you care for us so much so that you open your words to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit dwell in us richly so that these words would not just go in our ears and then out, but that they would take root and produce fruit. Amen. You know, some criminals have the most funny and ironic names. Take, for instance, Connor Fudge, who was arrested for stealing $500 worth of cake and ice cream from the Cold Stone Creamery. Or a woman named Jackie McBurney, who was arrested for what? Yes, arson. <laughs> or Patrick Molesti. We're not going there. Or, or Edward Cocaine or Crystal Matheny, who were both arrested on, yes, drug charges. Or Daniel Nudie, who was arrested for exposing himself on a bus. Or the greatest of all time ironic criminal names, Bernie Madoff, who made off with billions of dollars swindled from his clients. Now, if someone named Madoff approaches you today with investment ideas, you'd probably run, right? Well, it's the exact opposite with God. God has a name. We've been looking at it these last few weeks. And it's with his name that he seeks to calm Moses and his people. Remember, when you see the words in your text, the Lord, where the Lord is all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Underlying that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's actually a name, God's name. In our passage, what does God do? He repeatedly declares his name to Moses. I'm Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God. I am Yahweh. This is meant to give him calm and to cause him to trust. Now, this isn't the first time God has revealed his name to Moses, but Moses is a human being like you and me. Moses is forgetful. The circumstances on the ground for Moses and his people have gotten so bad that Moses blocked out what God had previously revealed about himself. And this can happen to me and you too. We read scripture and we meditate on it and we conclude that God is good and that is, and that, and that, um, he desires to walk with us in this life and to be present with us. But then your world is rocked with hardships and uncertainty. We then doubt God's presence and care for us and wrap ourselves up in an inward spiral of doubt and self-pity. Tony Merida writes, The problem most believers have is that most believe in God's sovereignty theoretically. But practically, they are emotional train wrecks. They have not worked this truth deep down into their hearts. God has a lesson for Moses and his people and for us here this morning. God wants to teach us this, that we are to trust in God. In our passage, God reveals three reasons why we're to trust in him. We are to trust in God because of his power, 
his promise and his plan. First, we're to trust God because of his power. We have a, a word we use to describe God's power. It's omnipotent. The word omnipotent comes from the Latin. Omni meaning all and potens meaning power. Just as God is omniscient and omnipresent, so too God is omnipotent. Now, the greatest display of God's omnipotence comes at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, where, where God, with just the power of his voice, with his word, he creates all things visible and invisible. Later in Job, in Job chapter 42, spoke of God's power. Here's what he said there. I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Now, human beings reside on a scale between acceptance of God's omnipotence to denial. Job eventually lived his life with an absolute acceptance of God's omnipotence. Pharaoh lived in denial of God's omnipotence. And Moses was living somewhere in between, right? How about you? Where do you live? On the scale between denial of God's all-powerfulness to a complete acceptance, where do you find yourself this morning? Moses needed to experience God's omnipotence so that he could live with great faith and trust. So too, you and me. In verse 1, God makes an important point for us to accept. Only God has the power to deliver us. Verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Twice Yahweh says, With a strong hand Pharaoh will send them out. Whose hand will drive the Israelites out of the, out of the land? It's Pharaoh's hand. Pharaoh will be the one who says, just get the heck out of here now. But actually, did you recognize the power behind Pharaoh's hand? Whose hand is directing Pharaoh's hand? It's the Lord's hand. The Lord said, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Earlier in chapter 4, God said that Pharaoh's heart would become increasingly harder over time towards letting God's people free. And we will see next week that there's going to need to be a lot of plagues before Pharaoh will finally relent and let the people go free. What God wants Moses and us to see is that no amount of human or earthly pressure could bring about the rescue of God's people. Salvation must come from God. That's the point. And God has the power to save. So, even though God had told Moses before that it wasn't going to be easy. He told him that Pharaoh's heart would get hard and that he would not release his grip easily. Even though God had clearly told Moses these things, Moses thought that he and Aaron would just walk right into Pharaoh's throne room and declare the words of Yahweh, let my people go, and that somehow Pharaoh would just roll over easy. Now, as we will see, that was not God's plan. God knew that his enemy had a grip on his people so that no earthly leader, even Moses, could free them. How much more so with our own salvation? God's enemy has such a grip on people that most don't even, don't even see that they're in bondage. Scripture tells us that our shared human experience um, 
he talks about it with many different metaphors. And one of the metaphors that we see in Scripture is that our lives apart from Christ um, share this metaphor of being slaves to sin. The picture the Bible presents is that until God sets you free in Christ, you are a slave to the sinful things of this world. You just can't help doing what you're doing. Which is why Paul wrote these words in Galatians. He said, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. But now you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So, My friend, a Christian is someone who at one time did not know God, but now has come to be known by God. And a Christian is someone who at one time was enslaved uh, to the fallen principles of this world, but now something has happened. God has what? With his outstretched arm has power, powerfully rescued you. And this is, this is all by his grace. You could not do it in your own power. right? Salvation is what? Salvation is of the Lord. God's plan was to rescue his people in such a great act of his omnipotent hand so that all who witnessed it would know that there is a God above and that his name is Yahweh and he is a God who loves his people and he delivers them. See, God's powerful salvation is meant to cause all to see that he alone is worthy of glory and praise. You know, when I was a boy, I used to bask in the glory of my gamesmanship, whether it was tag or musical chairs. I was the odds-on one to be the last one standing, or at least that's how I choose to remember my childhood. Oh, the glory. In Foursquare, kick the can, capture the flag, bombardment, you name it. I treasured being the one who won the game, who held the last ball, who ran back with the flag in victory. Oh, the glory. Now, with regards to the Israelites' salvation and with regards to your salvation, God is the one who won the game, who held on to the last ball, who ran back with the flag of victory. We could not do it on our own. We lack the power. Salvation belongs to an omnipotent Lord. And so what? God alone gets the glory. That's the power. Now for the promise. We are to trust God because of his promise. In verse 1, God says to Moses, trust me, I have the power to control Pharaoh like putty in my hand. And then in verses 2 through 8, he says, you can trust me to use my power. I promise. Verses 2 through 8, God points us to past promises and then to future promises. First, the past promises. In verse 3, God begins by what? Reminding Moses of his covenant promise with the patriarchs. That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verse 3, God reminds Moses that he appeared to Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, as God Almighty. Then God says, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, This requires a little explaining. God has shared his name. He had shared his name, Yahweh, with Abraham in Genesis 15 and with Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. Is God lying? Uh, Can we not trust his Bible? No, he's not lying. Yes, we can trust our Bibles. The name Yahweh means something like this. I am the promise-keeping one, right? 
I am the promise-keeping one. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew that that was God's name, but they hadn't lived to see Yahweh be Yahweh, the promise-keeping one. They had yet to see the promises become fulfilled. But now that is changing with the Israelites. God is telling Moses that his covenant people will intimately experience God as Yahweh, the the God who is the promise-keeping God for his people. So God is giving his his name to his people, his name, so that they would learn to trust him as Yahweh. William Van Gemmeren, he's a theologian, he puts it this way. He, He says it's like God was giving his people his business card, right? And on the front of the card, in nice black letters, raised print, you can rub your fingers across it, it says Elohim. That's the Hebrew for God. Elohim, creator of all things. That's what's on God's card. But then God takes his card and flips it over, and he scribbles Yahweh, and he writes down his phone number. He says, you can call me at any time. My name is Yahweh. I am the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God that you now know. God gives his name in the context of his covenant. Verse 4, Yahweh says that he's also established a covenant with them. Now, what's a covenant? Why Why is it so important? Remember, a covenant is not a contract. Some of you are attorneys. You know what contracts are. Contracts are written up to cover someone's rear end, right? When the poop hits the fan, you have a contract, and you say, sorry, you owe me. I'm out of here, right? But with a covenant, a covenant is different. Parties enter into covenants in order to mutually bless the other one, whether the other one lives up to their end of the bargain or not. Guess what? That's why marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. In sickness and in health, in good times or in bad, I will fulfill my covenant promises to bless. Even if you fail me, I will bless you. I promise. I covenant. God entered into a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's offspring. I will be your God and you will be my people. Even if you fail me, I will not fail you. Even if you are disobedient, I will be faithful to bless you. That's crazy. We don't operate that way. But God does. In verse 5, God says, Moreover, I have heard their groanings and I have remembered their covenant. And I... Is God suffering from dementia? No, God doesn't forget anything. He's simply using human language. He's condescending to, to our terms so that we can understand what's going on. He said, I've heard, I've remembered my covenant. He's basically saying, get ready, Moses. Yahweh, your, your faithful promise-keeping God, is on the move. After Yahweh points Moses back to his covenant-keeping, um, promise-keeping, he points Moses forward to his promises to come. God says, I will, seven times in verses 6 through 8. The first three speak of God's promise to save. Look at verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Get ready, my people. I'm about to do things that are amazing. I promise that I will deliver you. I will redeem you. The first three I will statements speak of 
the redemption of God. I want to experience God's redemption personally. The second two I will statements speak of God's adoption of his people. Listen to this. Listen. Verse 7 describes the whole theme of the Bible. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. What is the entire Bible about? Listen to Yahweh in verse 7. Listen. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's the theme of the entire Bible. To people, to humanity, is run from God, act as if God doesn't even exist. God says, I, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I promise this to you. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you in such a way that even when you mess up, you will still be mine. God adopts a people to be his people. Now, what does the Lord say after he promises to take them out of Egypt and adopt them as as his own? Look at verse 7. It says, and then you shall know, after all this happens, you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is saying, you've heard from me that my name is Yahweh, but you haven't experienced me yet as Yahweh. That's why you don't trust me. That's why you doubt That's why you can't see past the end of your nose, Moses. You don't know me as Yahweh, your promise-keeping God, who is always there for his people. But God says, now now they will come to know me as Yahweh when I deliver them to their destination. Where is God taking them? The last two promises tell us, I will bring them into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's this covenant promise. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you. I will bring you into the land. The whole world will be blessed through you. This is God's big plan of promise for the world. God says, I will give you this land as a possession. Now, wow, what a gift. Knowing what you know about these people of Israel, do you think they deserve this gift of this wonderful promised land? No. We're going to see over the next 40 years, They act with great disobedience and disregard to God and his ways. And yet God has promised to bring them into this blessing because it is a covenant, not a contract. God says, I will take them there even though they don't deserve it. God is God's faithfulness towards us is not depending upon our faithfulness towards him. This should be a good word for you. We need to hear this. Christian, I think we all need to know that your God is a covenant-keeping God. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel like you always let God down. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Maybe it's been a long time since you really had meaningful prayer with God. Maybe you feel like you've forfeited your, uh, your right to draw near to him. But I hope we see in this story is that this is not true. God is faithful to his covenant even when we are not faithful to him. God has scribbled his name on the back of a card and he's handed it to you and me. And he says, he says, call me. I'm here for you. So we've seen that we're to trust God because of his power and because of his promise. Now let us see that we're to trust God because of his plan. You know, I think one of the greatest stumbling blocks for God's people isn't that we don't believe in God's power 
And it isn't that we don't delight in God's promises. We do. I think what trips most of us up is that we're not fully on board with God's plan. Countless Christians around the world know that Christ has called them to to take up their cross and follow him in obedience to spread his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But I know it, it can be hard to admit it, but I admit it myself. Do we not have a tendency to design our own plans for our own lives and then expect God to enter into our plans and bring about our plans? Do you see this tendency in your own life? Thankfully, one of the ways God loves us is by how He disrupts our lives and and our silly plans that we have. My friends, God will not allow Himself to be used as a good luck trinket in our lives. God will not allow Himself to be suckered into living for our glory. God loves you but he does not exist for you. We need to get that into our heads. The abundant life that Jesus talked about doesn't mean an abundance of possessions and fun-filled memories. The abundant life Jesus promised is your best life ever. But your best life ever is found bound up in God's plans for this universe, even if it means the hardship of bearing your cross for Christ's sake. My friends, the Bible is just one giant story of God's power and promise and plan to redeem and restore all things, including people made in His image for all for all eternity. God sent His very own Son into this world to fulfill this plan. And picture this. Listen, picture this. No second in Jesus' life was ever lived for his own plan. Not a single stray second. Jesus said he came to do his Father's will. Jesus always lived to do his Father's will. Why? Because Jesus loved his heavenly Father. He simply wanted to please him. He longed to bring glory and honor to his Father. And my friends, all this brought him joy. And it was his best life ever. Satan offered him the entire world if he would just bow his knee to him. And Jesus said, no, that's not my best life. And so your best life possible is a life that seeks its purpose in God's plan. You were made by God for God's purposes to be fulfilled in you. And so your best life ever is a life wherein you humble yourself and you say to Yahweh, here am I, send me. Now, that's not typically our first reaction. In the remaining verses of our passage, we see how people respond to God's plan and we see how Moses responds to God's plan. First, the people. In verse 9, we read that Moses um, spoke all that God had just told him All this wonderful stuff, including his name. Here's his business card. Look, he wrote it right there. You see that? I I talked to the Lord, right? He gave us his name. He said, call any time. But what? Listen, verse 9 says, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Do you see it? Because they're broken, because of their broken spirit 
and harsh slavery. My friends, understand this. Sometimes people in our community are so beaten up and bruised and broken by the suffering they experience in their daily lives that they don't even have the wherewithal to hear the gospel and to receive it. They're so broken, they're so needy, they're so worried that they cannot hear. Think how many people live in our midst whose lives are so messed up they can't even begin to listen to the gospel. That's why this church needs to be a church that meets the physical and the emotional needs of the people in our community in very, very practical ways. I think we do this. I think we do this well. I would like us to grow in this area. See, some people must first be brought to a place of calm so they can sit and hear of God's grace to them in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? The response of the Israelites in bondage is, it's understandable, right? But it's still unbelief. God had spoken to them all that they needed to trust in him, but they refused to be encouraged by his words. That's how the people respond. Now for Moses. After speaking to the people, Moses once again speaks with God, right? And God says in verse 10, uh, to go back to Pharaoh and go back to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And to which Moses says, wait, now, wait a minute, uh, Yahweh. Uh, I think we've been down this road once before. It didn't go too well. I don't know if you remember. Things have gotten worse, not better. And so Moses wants nothing to do with God's plan. In verse 12, he says to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me, right? This is an argument from lesser to greater. The people of Israel have not listened to me. How shall Pharaoh listen to me, right? But what is Moses doing to the plans of God? God has given Moses a cross-like plan for his life, but Moses is seeking release from God's calling. He's saying, I don't want your plan, I want my plan. And, and in my plan, somebody else does all this, and I just get to sit and watch. I mean, I believe you're powerful and all, but really me? Thankfully, Yahweh puts on his, I'm the sovereign Lord of the universe hat, and he puts Moses and Aaron in their place. Kind of like a father does with a child. I, w- I, n- I know you wish there was another way, but there isn't. That's God's point. I'm the God of all power, and I have a plan, my glorious plan, and you must do it, and you will do it, okay? Got it? You see that? Now consider this. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means like wine press, his soul was pressed to the point of almost breaking. He knew that on the cross uh, he would be separated for a moment from his heavenly Father as he bore the sins of the world. Jesus wasn't afraid of the pain of the cross. He was afraid of, the, of, of, of being separated from his heavenly Father as he bore our sin, as he descended into hell on behalf of us, as we just said in the Apostles' Creed. And so three times, but in humility, right? Not like like Moses, three times in humility, Jesus cries out to his father, asking if there's a, another plan, another way. 
One that doesn't involve like dying on a cross. There's got to be another way. Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God's plan to redeem us depended upon the faithful obedience of His own Son to the only plan possible. There was no other plan. If there was, God would have done it. The sinless divine Son had to suffer judgment in our place to drink the cup of God's wrath. There was and there is no other plan. God's power and God's plan brought about God's promise of redemption. Salvation is of the Lord. All right, so what's the big takeaway from this passage? We're to trust God because of His power and His promise and His plan. And we know that God has a name, Yahweh, the powerful covenant promise-keeping God. And we come to know God experientially as Yahweh when we commit to living a life for His glory. Some of you miss out on experiencing God's presence in your life is because you're living your own plan, not His. And you wonder, where is this God that I hear about? Commit your life to Christ. Take up your cross. Follow Him. Recognize it's hard but it's the best life ever. Why? Because God is present when we follow His plan. And it's joyful. It's a burden, but it's a joyful burden. Don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. In the end, you will experience Yahweh as Yahweh. Pastor Andrew Brunson spent two horrifying years in a Turkish prison on trumped-up terrorism charges. Brunson, a faithful Presbyterian minister, felt called by God to spread the gospel in Turkey. He took the cross and lived there and ministered for over 20 years. But then there was a coup attempt, and he got rounded up as if he was like going to overthrow the government or something. He was forced to live with 21 other criminals in a stinking prison cell that was only designed to house eight men. He was sentenced to 35 years in prison, basically a death sentence. Talk about a Moses before God moment. Why? 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 After all these years of being faithful, spread the gospel, why am I enduring this? Surprisingly, he was released on October 12th. I'm sure most of you have heard of this. In an interview, he described how his time in prison brought him to an all-time spiritual low. He felt forgotten and isolated from God. He said he had to speak to himself. He said, just breathe. (laughs) You don't have expectations that you have to preach to anyone. Just hang on to God. Brunson said, I just kept talking to God, talking to God whether he talked to me or not. When asked if he ever felt forsaken, he replied, I did feel that. But I know God never did forsake me. He said in the second year, 
when I began to become stronger, I wrote a song that focused on speaking truth about God. One of the lines is, Jesus is Jesus the faithful one who loves me, always good and true. Why did he sing these words? Brunson said, because these are things I doubted. But I declared every day, God loves me. He is true. He is faithful. He has not abandoned me. Throughout the ordeal, Brunson and his wife kept asking two questions in light of God's power, promise, and plan. They kept asking, is God worthy? And is it worth it? Is God worthy? Is it worth it? To the first question, it was easy for them. No doubt God was worthy. But is it worth it? Is living a, in faithful obedience to God's plan worth it? It took them a while to come up to with a conclusion, to settle on an answer. In the end, Brunson and his wife were able to rejoice. Is God worthy? Is it worth it? Yes and yes. God is worthy. It is worth it. Now, Grace Church, may we be a church that so trusts in God that we're able to rejoice in agreement and say God is worthy and it is worth it. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy. If we think anything else, it's because we're blind. Uh, we don't have eyes to see. It means we're still distracted by the momentary pleasures of this world. Things that are good, but not ultimate good, like you. You give us these things so that we can rejoice in your presence with them, and yet we run away and we enjoy them on our own apart from you. May that change today. May our lives be entrusted to you. May we know that, Jesus, that there is no better plan for our lives than to die to ourselves, that we might come alive in you. But that's hard. We, we don't want that. It's a daily process of reminding ourselves that you are worthy and that it is worth it. May we walk out these doors more empowered to live that out, we pray. Amen.